Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we'll hear from Sadek Waba, founder and managing partner of I-Squared Capital, an independent multi-billion dollar global infrastructure investment company. He will discuss the potential economic impact of the bipartisan infrastructure framework being debated in Washington as well as other creative financing options that he thinks governments should be considering to create more investment in America's physical assets. Let's listen in. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for all, all for being here. We've got a special guest today who's going to uh, give us a private sector perspective on the debate on infrastructure. We've heard a lot from politicians uh, over the last uh, weeks and months, but uh, um, Sadek Waba is an advocate for transformative approaches to investment in infrastructure and a frequent commentator about the need for more investment in infrastructure to promote sustainable economic growth. He's the founder, chairman, and managing partner of uh, uh, I-Squared Capital, a global investment firm that focuses on infrastructure investment. He's a senior fellow at at the Development Research Institute at NYU and a senior member of St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Prior to founding I-Squared Capital, he was CEO of Morgan, Stanley's infra- Morgan Stanley Infrastructure uh, and chief investment officer of Morgan Stanley Infrastructure Partners, PhD in economics from Harvard, and is published widely on issues uh, related to infrastructure policy. And uh, we will have time for questions. So uh, uh, Liz will uh, uh, ask you to, uh, to identify yourself in the chat if you have a question for Sadek. But with that, let me turn it over to Sadek Waba and welcome him. Great. Uh, many thanks, Doug, uh, for the very kind introduction. Uh, and thank you, Nancy, for inviting me today uh, to speak to No Labels. Um, I, I really would like to commend No Labels for the great work uh, that you are doing, uh, which is really sorely, sorely needed. Um, you also have played a key role in shaping the debate on infrastructure. Uh, and if you look at your website, uh, all of the good work that you've published and you've uh, invited people on the topic and try to bridge the gap between all sides. And, and I think we're all very grateful for that. Um, Nancy, before you started, we started, you asked me, when did your interest and passion for infrastructure started? Um, I started my career uh, many years ago at the World Bank, and I was working on the social uh, dimensions of structural adjustment. At the time, uh, a lot of countries had to go through structural adjustment programs, which were pushed by the World Bank and the IMF. And it was in the early days where they decided that they needed maybe to focus on social issues and the impact that these uh, very heavy adjustment programs would have on poverty uh, and social issues in, in countries. And so I remember uh, working in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, and in a car driving a few hours outside of the uh, capital and seeing a group of children, uh, mostly girls, working, walking on an unpaved road, uh, going to their schools. And I asked, well, where is the school? And they said, well, about an hour and a half away. And so I asked, do they walk every day? an hour and a half, and they said, yes. I said, "Um, any public transport, anything? I said, no, because the road is really uh, very bad, as you can see, and we haven't been able to uh, really build a a decent road there. And then and there, I realized that something is not right, and that infrastructure, in a way, 
can be critical to the development of an economy. And so, so Nancy, that's, that's where it uh, all started many moons ago. But today, uh, we're discussing the infrastructure plan uh, proposed by the Biden administration and the proposed bipartisan bill. And I want, what I wanted to do today is really talk a little bit about some of the features of the administration's plan, uh, the bipartisan approach, and focus on the funding issues associated with that plan. Uh, but, but maybe we should start with some facts. Um, we've been investing in infrastructure in a country at less than 1% of GDP since the 1970s. Uh, in contrast, uh, China has had on average 7% uh, of GDP invested in infrastructure since the 1990s, uh, which is why when you see that massive differential, we need today just to maintain, and I emphasize the word maintain, our infrastructure according to various sources, McKinsey, um, uh, Society for Civil Engineers, at least $2.5 trillion, uh, and that is just to maintain uh, and barely upgrade our infrastructure. If you then add whatever it is that we need to invest for climate change uh, and so on, and bring it up to 21st century technology, then you probably need another couple of trillion dollars that you need to invest, especially if, as it seems to be the bipartisan case, that we would like to be in a position to compete with China over the coming decades, not by just having a strong domestic economy and a strong domestic infrastructure, but being able to export that infrastructure overseas in a way that we have not done in the last couple of decades. So the Biden administration uh, initially proposed $2 trillion, uh, of which a portion of it was really not for what I would call soft infrastructure or non-core infrastructure, which unfortunately created its own dynamics uh, as to what is infrastructure and what isn't infrastructure, which in my view is a red herring, uh, but we can discuss certainly later. But the biggest objections at the end uh, revolved around how do you fund that infrastructure? Uh, so Republicans uh, objected to, as you know, to any uh, tax increase, uh, and the administration and the Democrats have objected to any increase uh, in existing user fees, gasoline tax or whatnot, or simply introducing a different type of user fees for maybe the new infrastructure that you'll be uh, putting in place. Uh, and this, just as an aside, the gasoline tax um, uh, uh, imposed by the federal government, which has been unchanged since 1993, uh, was or is $18.4, uh, sorry, sorry, cents, and then if you add something like about 30 cents at the state level, so you're paying roughly 52 cents a gallon. Uh, but if you wanted to keep that 18 in real terms, constant in today's value, that would be 30 cents and would add another 30 to 40 billion. Not much, but still uh, is significant enough to help in the maintenance of our infrastructure. So the bipartisan uh, bill uh, has come and has slashed the Biden plan to basically 1.2 trillion, um, of which 650 uh, goes to very specific uh, sectors. And then in addition to the 650, they've reallocated various uh, amounts from different sources. But overall, um, it's about 1.2 trillion. And what is unsaid is that if that plan goes through, and we all hope that it does, um, it will be funded essentially through budget deficit, uh, because the taxes is non-starter, user fees is non-starters. And so is that the most efficient way to do it is simply to add another trillion plus dollars to the budget deficits. Now, 
we all want to invest in our infrastructure, and we know that uh, every hundred billion dollar that we invest in infrastructure roughly gives you a multiplier of anywhere between 1.2 to 1.5 times, and could create up to a million new jobs. Uh, in addition, I think the positive externalities that you create from having better roads, better airports, more efficient infrastructure systems uh, will no doubt increase Amer American productivity for the decades to come. But in reality, that amount, so let's be clear, notwithstanding uh, our full support for that bill, uh, these amounts are woefully inadequate at the end of the day if we want to truly upgrade our infrastructure, and more importantly, if we really want to compete with China, which seems to be an area where on a bipartisan basis everyone agrees. So what are the funding sources that can be implemented, um, and what, what would it be its main characteristics? I think the most important one is to recognize that any funding for our infrastructure needs to be for the long run, simply to match the long-term characteristics of our infrastructure. They tend to have long lead time for you to develop a road, uh, you need to do feasibility studies, uh, you need to uh, uh, issue or uh, apply for lots and lots of permits, uh, environmental uh, assessments, and so on and so forth. Uh, sometimes right-of-way issues. So it's a complex program that takes many, many years to develop. And so what you want is to be able to match those long lead times, that long-term investment with a long-term funding program, which is really not associated with the uh, typical appropriation cycle. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, as part of that desire to establish that long-term planning, which of course the Chinese did extremely well, uh, outside of the normal appropriation cycle, uh, what I certainly have done uh, with a number of individuals is to try and launch a bipartisan coalition for infrastructure funding. Because it is a generational challenge, and I think we're up to it, but we have to absolutely work to convince policymakers that infrastructure at the end of the day has a big component, which is apolitical, and which requires certainty in the long-term funding. Um, so one of the proposals, uh, which has in fact been around for years, uh, since the Clinton administration, including the Bush, Obama and Trump administration was the creation of an infrastructure bank. Uh, I recently actually uh, discussed that in much more detail uh, in an article uh, that, that I published in Barron's uh, about the role of, of an infrastructure bank. But the basic idea would be to uh, provide $100 billion uh, and then uh, create out of that a bank that has the ability to uh, lend, invest both debt, equity, and various other things up to a trillion dollars in infrastructure. The idea would be to create that bank, which is independent. It could be a government state entity under the supervision of the treasury. Um, any administration will have the ability to fire people if they want to, but certainly it being independent in terms of the way it manages itself uh, and have that bank invest in infrastructure over a multi-decade period. Uh, interestingly, the current bipartisan bill um, has suggested the creation of something called uh, IFA, the, um, I think it's called Infrastructure Finance Authority, uh, under the Repair Act. And I'm not sure what repair stands for. I think it's reinventing economic partnerships, something like that. Um, I won't go into the details of the IFA, but suffice to say that, unfortunately, it really bears little resemblance to the idea that's been around, namely create an independent organization that can think over the long term. So part of the funds still have to go through appropriation. 
Uh, Congress uh, with administration are the ones that appoint people. Uh, and so it's really an extension of the existing status quo uh, rather than try and define a new organization that is focusing in uh, infrastructure for the long run. Um, but still, I think uh, I would definitely say it's better than nothing. Certainly what we would want to do is try and widen the scope of the IFA because right now it's limited to investment grade projects. And what I've um, uh, shared uh, with those who've uh, drafted the bill and, and pushed for it is that if it is an investment grade, investment grade is a rating that is provided by rating agencies. For some of you who may not be familiar with it. Um, and what the, the bill says, it has to be investment grade, so high quality project. And the argument that I make is if it's high quality projects, then the existing capital markets would be able to fund it. And so it defeats a little bit the purpose of saying, I will only invest in high quality projects. Uh, but another area which I think is important to keep in mind is that you have hundreds of billions of dollars that is going to be deployed and invested in infrastructure over the coming years. Um, if you think of just of the transport sector, there's over 50,000 local agencies, municipalities that are respons responsible for a transport asset. How are they going to cope with that um, avalanche of investment opportunities uh, when they really barely have the ability to maintain existing roads. These people are overwhelmed, understaffed. And so one of the things that we want to suggest is the idea of including a capacity building effort within the IFA or the infrastructure bank or whatever you want to call it to help those local agencies in understanding and evaluating the projects so that they're able to then seek the funds, whether it's from the private sector or for them government. Interestingly, the Treasury Department has an extensive program where they second to uh, ministries of infrastructure in countries like Brazil, Indonesia, and others uh, on behalf of the US government to help them devise and plan for infrastructure programs and funding. And so I'm simply saying, we're doing it for other countries, which is great. Let's do it for our own states. Another element, which I think is very important, is to incentivize our own public pension funds. Uh, the public and private sector uh, pension funds have roughly around $18 trillion. Very little of that is invested in infrastructure. Yet, interestingly, infrastructure is a perfect asset to match their long-term liabilities. Uh, today, they have collectively a $2 trillion deficit in pension funds obligations. Um, fixed income securities, bonds, uh, essentially give you very little. Uh, you can create a program where you have infrastructure programs where state pension funds, whether it's in California, Texas, um, New York, invest in their own infrastructure, their own airports, their own roads. And don't think of it as a public-private. For some, that's not a good idea. Uh, I tend to think public-private are a good idea. But if you don't like it, then focus on public-public partnerships, where you have state pension funds invest in their own infrastructure, either within their own states or even outside, and there you can have a great partnership between, between municipalities, state agencies, and those pension funds. They could earn a return for their pensioners of three to 400 basis points uh, over, for example, inflation or risk-free, uh, and provide them with the much needed investment. And conversely, the state agencies can find a long-term partner that work with them in making those investments. When you look at the deployment of capital by those state pension funds in infrastructure, uh, in the US, and you compare it to countries like Canada, Australia, UK, uh, 
uh, we are roughly at about 1% allocated to infrastructure. Canada is about 8%, uh, Australia is a little bit more. And some Canadian pension funds, like for example, Ontario uh, Teachers, has deployed over 30% in infrastructure. So that's huge, but they've really understood uh, how to do it. Now, part of it is because there are projects, and that's the paradox. US state pension funds would love to invest in infrastructure projects. The problem is you don't have enough of them, uh, even though our infrastructure is crumbling. Another idea that I've suggested is the development of IRA accounts, uh, specifically for infrastructure. Today, we have about 60 million IRA accounts. Uh, if we have people allocate up to $10,000 in any of the, in their infrastructure accounts, you suddenly can generate from US households $600 billion of investments that can go into infrastructure. I would be interested in investing in my local airport, my local road. And so there could be mechanisms in which you can invest in the debt of these projects uh, and earn a certain return, or maybe in the equity over the long run, again, earning a certain return. So these are the mechanisms that one can think of. And last but not least is, of course, I mentioned them already, foreign pension funds, Canadians, UK, Australians, who are dying to invest in the US, uh, but for various regulatory uh, tax issues have really been, uh, I would say, actively discouraged in a way from investing in our own infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I mean those heavy infrastructures like bridges and roads, which may need some uh, capital expenditure uh, and that would have a long life through the form of a concession, for example, of 20, 30, 40 years. So overall, I really believe that the issue is not funding, but unfortunately is always you know, the political will in finding the right solution. Uh, I think the current bipartisan bill, which I, I really hope uh, goes through, uh, is certainly a step in the right direction, but it's by no means uh, the end. It's only the beginning. Um, and, and what's exciting is I think the Biden administration uh, has been in a unique position to be able to push that through um, when in fact in the past many administrations, both Republicans and Democrats, have unfortunately failed to do that. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.